No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. What can I do? What was my purpose of surviving is mm-hmm. what I struggled mm-hmm. with for a long time. Mm-hmm. And now I know, I mean, this is my purpose, uh, mm-hmm. sharing stories, um, you know, allowing me to give my platform to you to share your most incredible story. And, and so I think it's, it is about finding a purpose um, and advocating. I mean, we are shifting to advocating. What zip their lips about is I, I get tired of them hammering on or implying that post-traumatic stress disorder is ruinous, that once you got it, oh my God, your life is in the toilet. First of all, I like this concept that I read in a book called Relentless Courage. It was written by Sergey. He's a, a cop that went through horrible treatment, not only from his days doing cop work, but treatment that he got from his pop culture as a result of having PTSD. And he would like to see it redefined as post-traumatic stress injury. And I like that idea because it emphasizes this is something that happened to us. It's external from us. We weren't born with it. It's not a personality flaw. It's nothing we invited. It came out of the blue. And we did the best they could with what we were dealt with. And it's a trauma. And trauma is a word that we toss around way too frequently these days. And I think trauma should be defined as a life-altering event, like what you went through. And that's why there is no closure. So I like the concept of post-traumatic injury, and I wish psychologists would adopt that. There is, if you haven't heard about it, you may have, two researchers by the name of Calhoun and Tedeschi. Back in the 80s, early 90s, they started writing about post-traumatic growth. And we don't talk enough about that, but that is they found that 60% of people that they looked into for who had PTSD from a number of reasons, could be from military service, could be physical attack, whatever. 60% of people did not have ongoing symptoms of PTSD after the fact if they found a purpose, if they found a meaning to what they'd been through, and if they were able to stop and marvel in their resiliency. Because they realize it's not an even playing field. I am not like other people. I now have one hand tied behind my back, but I'm still going to move forward. And he found that post-traumatic growth can occur where people have an increase in self-confidence. They have in-depth ability to relate to other people who've been through trauma prior, comparing to prior before their own trauma. They have fewer friends, but more meaningful relationships and a much greater appreciation for life. They don't take it for granted. 
They don't I focus on getting material things. You know, they're about making a difference and connecting with people, finding meaning out of trauma and reaching out and paying it forward. And I don't think we talk enough about that. And I wish psychology would pick up the ball on that and say, we've talked to PTSD in the ground. Let's talk about PTG and get on with it, which is why I like to talk about it. <laughs> We're going to look more into that. Absolutely. I was going to say, I couldn't agree more. The, mm-hmm. with everything that you more. were just saying about PTG. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. Let's have that be part of the conversation. Yes. Exactly. Give people hope. Exactly. Yeah. Jane, when was the last time you've sort of had a anxiety attack or something related to your PTSD? You know, it's funny you should ask that because I, if you had asked me that a month ago, I would have said decades, but a month ago for reasons which I cannot explain, except I've been working on a manuscript that might have something to do with it. I woke up from a nightmare about John Carl Fry coming after me. And it was very real. Now he's dead. He's not coming after me. He died in prison. But it just it was like a reminder to me. It's like, you know, don't get too smug. <laughs> you still got some aftermath going on there. Uh, it's, it's never, uh, you know, completely gone. But I would say that. And then I, I still have to consciously work at how I, f- I, how do I say this? I used to love baseball, but my husband was murdered with a baseball bat. And I still have to well my reaction to the sound of baseball. Like if I go into a restaurant where I don't expect the monitors to be on and it'll be a baseball game. And the, as I walk in the restaurant, the announcer says something about oh, the crack of the bat or, or I hear the crack. Of, it, it just takes my wind away. And those kind of triggers I don't think will ever be gone. Now, they don't develop into full-blown panic attacks anymore. But it's, it's just like, ah, oh, it's that again. You know? But I've done a lot of work to have it to be in control and not let it control me. But I, at the same time, don't want to ignore the possibility that it still doesn't have some scars in there. Um, I can understand the anger. I was real, real angry about my attack and what he did to me and, and then finding out what he did to others. Uh, yeah. And my baby, were you able to eventually let go of some of that anger? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, it was irrational. I got to the point where I go, this is stupid. I go into a grocery store and I would be angry that they only sold loaves of bread big enough for families. I'm like, well, not everybody's got a partner. Why do they sell loaves for one people, one person? Why do they sell loaves for more than for family size, you know? Or somebody opened the door for me. I'm like, I think I'm weak. <laughs> I was looking for <laughs> things to get angry about. And finally, after I did my travels, internationally. And I started on this gratitude thing. I stopped myself and I said, I've got to let go of that because I have so much to be grateful for. Not the least of which is I didn't get murdered. They may have tried. They, I have every reason to believe they were near my house because I found cigarette butts outside my window. Uh, this is about two weeks before he was murdered. And it had been raining for days. And I was getting ready for my parents that were going to come visit later in the summer. And I was out there pruning and cleaning up the yard. And I found three dry cigarette butts after days of rain in a place that no pedestrian could have been. Somebody had to go out of their way to be in that spot. And I'm like, that's weird. And at the, at the I didn't know what to make of it. I hadn't connected it because I didn't know what he was up to at that point. Looking back on it, I'm like, hmm. We also had a lot of hang-up calls, which I didn't know meant anything, except I noticed that a guy always sounded the same on the other on the other side of the phone. He always sounded drunk and like he had a Southern accent. Well, John Carl Fry's from Tennessee, and he was high all the time. 
So it probably was him. And then it got to the point where my husband would dash for the phone if it rang at one in the morning and insist on answering it ostensibly so I wouldn't have to be bothered by it. But I think now he was just trying to intervene and make sure I didn't get the call. I didn't figure it out. So I could have been gone with him. And I and once I took stock, once I got all that information and I did my traveling and I physically got fit, I stopped and I started looking at it like, look, he paid the ultimate price. I didn't. Were you angry with him, with your husband? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Had he survived, I would have left him in a heartbeat. Oh, I would have left skid marks. No, that wasn't okay behavior. Have you been able to forgive him? No, and I have no choice. I'm no, I have no desire to, and here's why. I get asked that occasionally. For one reason, he's never asked for forgiveness. He had 18 months to turn that around when he was involved with them. Never once did he come to me and say, you know what, I screwed up. And I need your forgiveness for what he didn't do that. Number two, I don't buy this stuff that you do it for yourself. And here's why. I think that be, I, I don't agree that lack of forgiveness inevitably leads to bitterness and anger. I think there's a third alternative. I think it can. But I think the third alternative is indifference. And that's what I have tried to work towards, indifference. He's in my rear view. I have moved away. I have grown away. I have succeeded all odds in terms of where I would be at this point in my life. And he's in my rear view. And that was a chapter. It's closed. I've moved on. And he paid the ultimate price. He, you know, I, I liken it to the situation that many American Indian tribes used to use back in the day. If an Indian chief, this is in the Sioux, for example, the Sioux, if, if an Indian chief committed a homicide, which is totally not okay, because that was considered a crime against the creator, the penalty was that the other five nations would come together on the spot where the murder occurred, where the chief who had done the murder was going to be. And they would literally strip him of his chiefdom, turn their backs on him, and would never speak his name again. He was a non-person at that point. He had no rights to any privileges. His name was never to be brought up again in the tribe. He was erased from their history. And that's the position I take. And that's why I don't forgive, because he didn't earn it. He didn't earn my forgiveness. And I'm not about to extend it. To, uh, uh, no, that's not. E no, I'm not even going to entertain that as a possibility. Well, I I've been I've also been um, encouraged over the years that I needed to forgive. Um, and, and I felt the same way. OK, for one, who do I forgive? Because my attacker has never been uh, identified to why am I going to forgive him for something that he's probably felt no remorse for, um, for what he did to me? And I really couldn't, I, I couldn't really understand that concept until I heard the wonderful Oprah Winfrey show one day. And her definition of forgiveness was um, forgiving a situation that you had no control over. It's a much more detailed um, paraphrase that she uses. But um, once I heard her talk about that, I was like, I can do that. I can, I can forgive the, the, my attack in this situation. I had no control over because I did in certain ways blame myself for being so naive and, and put myself in that situation. But once I forgave, it was, it was rather freeing. And, and so, and I feel the same way. Once I 
he's a non-person. Once I moved on, it's in my rear view and I and I worked at indifference. I feel free from it. Yeah, I was able to really move forward quite a bit. I look at forgiveness as it's traditionally expected of crime victims like this. It would be like if somebody broke into your house and stole stuff and a neighbor came along and said, so how are you and the burglar getting along now? You getting along any better? Yeah. You know, I, I just think, first of all, it's up to the, only the person in the situation to, to decide that it should never be pushed on anybody. And secondly, that many of the people who push that have never been in your shoes and never will be. And I think it makes them feel better. If they think you're at peace, you have forgiven, then they feel better. You're doing it to make other people feel better. And I don't care about other people feeling better. What I care about is using that situation for fuel to help other people, to push the message forward, to take it and learn as much as I possibly can about that situation for future use. I it, it it was a and as you explained in your own situation, it was a turning point in my life. It had it not been for that awful situation, I wouldn't be who I am today. It was a blessing in disguise. And not that I wish it on anybody, not that I would want to go through it again. But because it did happen, I just made myself a promise very, very early on, like within six months of it happening, and I finally got alone to myself to think. I finally thought to myself, you know, somehow, some way. I'm going to make good come out of this. I have no idea what that's going to look like, how long it's going to take, what I'm going to do with this. I just know this for sure. They've gotten all they're going to get from me. They've gotten my house, my health, my money, my fertility, my privacy, my husband, my business. That's it. I'm not giving them my mental health too. I'm drawing a thick line here and now it's up to me. And so what can I do from this day forward, little by little, gradually, to figure out how I can make lemonade out of lemons. That's the only choice I saw. I thought, because if I don't do that, they win. If I don't do that, I'll be a statistic. I'll be a victim. And I ain't settling for that. Uh-uh. Nope. I agree. I agree. Totally. I agree. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Okay. Makes my husband tired to hear me talk about it. He always asks me, <laughs> when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? Because I'm 72. I have to give up triathlons because I have cancer. But I'm, I, uh, I'm I, and the treatment gave me really brittle bones, so I can't run anymore. But I have the podcast, Domino Effect of Murder, where there are amazing people that come on and willing to share their stories and what they've done and how they've addressed their own wounds. And they're just phenomenal people. Um, so I've got that. And I only do put it out twice a month because I knew the real because I'm still working too, two jobs. Uh, it's, my work is from home as a psychologist. I work for the federal government. It's a really boring job, but it pays the bills. So I'm still doing that. I got my podcast and I've written two books. The first one is, for better lack of a word, it's a true crime memoir. And it talks about what happened. And I, I wanted to write it to give hope to other homicide survivors. Like, if I do this, you can do this. I'm not anybody special. You know, I don't have tons of money. I'm not wealthy. I'm not celebrity. And the second, and then I sat on that for years and I wasn't satisfied because like you were saying a few minutes back when you said after you were attacked, it's like, what do I do now? There's no book on this. Right. And I thought there's no book on this. There's got to be a book on this. I've got to write a book about what do you do? So I put my energies into that and I kept trying to whittle it down and whittle it down. And it ended up being 450 pages. It could have been two volumes. But <laughs> I started with at the beginning and I went through it longitudinally. It's like starting with the death notification, 
what friends can do in the first 24, 48 hours, dealing with the media, planning a funeral, dealing with the investigation, on down through the, all the things you got to go through to well, well down into parole, uh, um, probation and advocacy work. So it's about 22, page, 22 chapters long. And I had the help of 18 um, advocates help me in certain areas. Because like I have, a, for example, I have a chapter on being wrongfully convicted. Well, I'm not an attorney, so I don't want to give lawyer advice, right? So I had the most amazing people that would say, yeah, you can quote me on that. I called this defense attorney, well-known for this, in Chicago, didn't know me from Adam, told him what I was doing. And I said, I need five minutes of your time. I want to read a list of things people should do if they're ever getting buttonholed for the murder of a family member that they did not do. What should they do not do? Can I just read those items to you and see if you agree? And he goes, yeah, all right. He didn't even charge me. So I read all the list. He goes, I would only add this one item. And I said, can I quote you on that? He goes, absolutely. Sweet. So then I got another <laughs> chapter on um, how to get your house ready for sale and probate, because often you do have to move, either because of safety reasons or you can't afford it or whatever. Well, I have a good friend who's in the construction business. And I said, would you read this chapter on how to shut down a house if it's in probate for six months? How do you keep it because you have to keep it going. You can't just let it go to ruin. You have to, how do you button it up for the winter in a cold, cold climate without pipes freezing or vice versa in a hot, humid climate in Florida? How do you keep it going, you know, and what kind of things should you think about? Because I wouldn't know all the ramifications. And he said, sure. And he looked over that chapter. So I, I wrote it with 18, the input of 18 people. That's out now. And I, that only came out in June. And like I said, it's longer than I expected it to be, but I wrote it so that each chapter can stand on its own because not everybody needs every chapter. For example, there's a chapter on crime scene cleanup. Well, not every homicide, it happens under a person's roof, so they can skip that chapter. But if it does happen under your roof, that's an important chapter to read because I don't like crime scene cleanup companies taking advantage of people, and they do. What they do is they'll take before and after crime scene videos and put them on the internet and make extra money off of your misery without you even knowing it. That's how to stop. And the way to get yeah. that to stop is only, and I'll put a plug in for this. If you're in that situation and you have a crime scene cleanup or a hoarding situation for that matter, in your home, only get a company that is recommended by the American Bio Recovery Association. They can even help with international referrals because they don't for, they forbid that kind of crap. So I had a chapter on that. It's awful. And there's a lawsuit in Florida on that, which I hope they win. A woman whose husband committed suicide and her twin sons ran across the video on TikTok of their father's suicide scene. Yeah. Um, so I, I cover stuff that might be up applicable to everybody and some that won't be. Like there's a chapter on grief in children. Well, if you don't have children, that's not going to be applicable. So you can skip that chapter. So it, it ended up being a lot longer than I wanted it to be, but I kept trying really hard to pare it down. And I have in there a lot of resources for homicide survivors. It's about that part alone is 10 pages. I have uh, books that can be read, videos that can be looked at. There's a chapter on the financial fallout from crime. People don't think about that. The medical bills and the um, funeral expenses and so forth. So hopefully that'll take off. You know, it's a it's it's a niche kind of book. It's you know not everybody's going to be wanting. It's not ever going to be a bestseller. <laughs> it's not <laughs> wide appeal. But in the right hands of advocates or um, crime scene uh, cleanup companies that are in the know, it might do well. So that just came out. And um, the podcast, and I have just speaking engagements, and I'm toying with the idea of a third book, but I haven't 
gotten into it too deeply yet. What was your first book? The first one's called A Life Divided. And uh, that was out in 2021, I think. And then the other, the next one, the reference book, the long one, it's called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. It's all on my website. If anybody just wanted to go there, it's I try to make it simple. It's And I have a blog on there that I write every two weeks on a different topic. Like the last one I wrote is, what does the weapon of choice tell you about the homicide or in your case, physical attack? A knife, that says a lot about a person as opposed to a gun. I had a... Um, the most popular one on there so far has been what to do if you're con- wrongly convicted of a homicide of a, a, re- a relative, you know, because you want to event- prevent that situation rather than try to be exonerated after the fact, because that's yeah, not exactly. likely to happen. So there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and that's why opportunities to talk about it like here is important. And you remind me, by the way, of one of my favorite sayings. One of my favorite saying is, which reminds me of your situation, is a woman is a lot like a tea bag. She doesn't know how strong she is until she's in hot water. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that is so fitting. That is so fitting. That is. That's so perfect. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That's great. It certainly is. Great. Drew, do you have any questions? We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. And now back to our episode. Um, yeah, actually I do. Uh, so Jan, I did come across a quote from you, um, that did say society does not know how to comfort us. Fortunately, we know how to comfort one another when talking about homicide or suicide survivors. What approach has worked best for you, for those that are closest in your life to actually talk about the situation? Cause I know Jane in mine's case, I knew about her entire story my entire life, but it wasn't until maybe six years ago that we sat down and talked about it and I didn't actually approach it. Jane actually approached the subject with mm. me. So I'm kind of curious, how's that been in, in your situation? I find that if, if I'm speaking with people who have either had a homicide happen in their era family or like her situation, the attack, I, there's already a sense in my, I'm speaking from my half of the conversation. I already have a sense of um, commonality and, understanding. And to the point where if I'm speaking with another homicide survivor, I could finish their sentences for them. I don't have a need to talk a lot. What I find is helpful is just silence so that you can express what you think without judgment and a validation of your strengths and what you've done about it and that life is not fair and that it's an equal opportunity club. And anybody could be stabbed coming out of a convenience store. Anybody's spouse could be murdered. Anybody's child could be abducted. It isn't a matter of them versus us. And I think once we realize that, it's a lot easier to have these conversations because you stop looking at us as if we're a different race or a different breed of person. <laughs> that I could be in your shoes tomorrow. So this is I gotta gather all the data I can and understand this as best I can. And to realize that the person is not a hundred percent changed. There's gonna be many dimensions of them which have not changed as a result of what's happened to them. 
But looking for them, for them to make the initiation of the discussion has been my experience as well. And in my experience, I think we crime victims withdraw from society and society withdraws from us. So we end up isolated. And the people that know us the best are people that have been through something similar. And I'm very comfortable with people who have been through something like what I've been through. Um, that's why I, I enjoy my interviews so much with my podcast guests. But I think discussions ought to center around the reactions to what happened and what you've done to put your pieces, put the floor back underneath you, what's not changed, as opposed to getting at salacious details. I think we fear that and that there's no place in a discussion for that. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot friends can do. And that's why I did a, did a whole chapter on it for them. Because I think friends want to help, but they don't know what to offer. And we're so bamboozled, we don't even know what do we need at that point in time. <laughs> but here's just one example of what a friend can do. In the early, early hours of a crime, stay with you all night and man the door. Put on the outside lights. Bring the dogs in. Run errands for you so you don't have to be out in public. Turn down the volume on the cell phones. Turn on the outside lights. Turn down the lamps on the inside. Put on soothing music if you're willing to have that happen. And and give you small, make sure you're, you're taking in liquids and help you get the name of your victim advocate. Help connect you with your primary care provider because you're going to need that. You're not going to be sleeping for once. And, and other previously diagnosed health conditions are likely to get worse, like psoriasis and hypertension, teeth grinding, and so forth. And so your, your friend can get you an appointment set up for your, see your healthcare provider. There's so many things that they can do, but they don't know what to ask, and we don't know what to ask of them. So that very, very valuable person can be wasted. That was all great advice. God, that was, that was great advice. Uh, I, I definitely will be using that if, if I should have to. Um, I know I've had a few friends that have lost, not not through murder or anything, but have lost loved ones. And and what do you say to them? What do you do? You want to do something to help them, and and you don't know I think what, what to do. What you can but... say to them is, look, I've never I've never been stabbed. I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but I do know this: that I am willing and able to sit here and listen whenever your time is ready to listen. Whether that's now, a week from now, a year from now. You just let me know you're willing and able to talk about it. Because in my experience, and maybe yours, the time you're starting to finally thaw out enough to talk about it, everybody's gone. Yeah, There's nobody to talk to. And the people that are still with you are walking on eggshells and treating you like you're a, a step away from the loony bin. So they're not going to open it up and say, so let's talk about that attack of yours. You know, That's not going to happen. Yeah. And now you have a need to talk about it. And you don't, it's like, how do you bring up that topic? You know, how's your Christmas? Oh, it's been great. Let me talk about my attack. You know, you're not going to get into it. You're not, not going to. So us initiating it is a very common experience. And that's usually, by the way, an indication of huge trust that when you extend that olive branch to somebody and say, hey, I want to talk about this. Because usually we pick our people very carefully, very wisely, who we share this stuff with, which is why I can talk to you about our, our experiences overlap, you know? Yeah. I I didn't know how to talk to people about it because I didn't know if they would be judgmental or if they, you know, how would they even understand what I'm going through when in reality, even if they didn't understand, just talking to someone would have helped me a lot in, in the early stages after my attack. I spoke recently to a group of hardened homicide detectives, and I wanted to put them in my shoes because they tend to look at it as a case. 
So I said to them, because they were an older group like me, and I said to them, I'm going to ask you to, to do something quietly, silently, and that is this. I want you to touch your eyes and think about the first few minutes or seconds, seconds is even better, the first few minutes or seconds that you heard about or saw 9-11. When you first saw that plane go into the second tower, when you first saw people jumping out of the building, when you first knew what was going on, long before news coverage and any kind of semblance of, of coverage, but when it first, first happened, what were your thoughts? What did you think? What did you feel? And I'm going to be quiet so you can think about that for a minute. And I'd be quiet. And then I'd say, that's what it feels like to be a crime victim. You don't know where to turn. You don't know if you're next, if you're if the danger's passed. You don't know who to call. You don't know who else knows about this or what to do, what to say, where to go. And you're feeling frightened and enraged and helpless and just jazz with wanting to do something, but you're running in place. That's what it feels like. Now take that and multiply it by two, three, five, ten years of it. That's what it's like to be a crime victim. So I said to these detectives, you can relate to us if you don't forget that. Because that morning of 9-11, everybody who was alive and not a baby, but alive and old enough to understand what was going on, at that moment, we were all homicide survivors. I agree. I know exactly what I was doing. I know exactly how I felt. Yeah. It's yeah. an awful feeling. Yeah. I can remember that evening. My children were little at that point. They were still in elementary school. And I remember remember that the uh, they, they stopped all air travel that night. No, no domestic air travel was allowed. Mm -hmm. And I distinctly laid in bed about 930 at night hearing planes overhead. And I'm like, oh, shit, what do I make of this? I turned on the news, turned on nothing. I'm not hearing anything about anything. And I'm thinking, are my children safe? Where do I go? Why am I hearing planes overhead? Who is up there? And then I kind of got a grip on myself. And I said, no, just calm down. You live near an Air Force base. It's probably Air Force scrambling to do something positive for the country. Yeah. It's not more attacks. But I had to really go through that step and, and think about it. I mean, because you're just on on pins and needles. You know, you're you're a hair trigger away from a panic attack, you know. And I think if people relate that way, maybe they can get a glimpse of what it's like, you know, and people try and, you know, you, you hope for their sake, they never really will know what it's all about, what it's really like, because it's nothing you'd wish on anybody. Mm. And that's how I got my, my two adopted children, because their mother was murdered. And when the social worker knew I was wanting to adopt, she said, I've got two girls, they're in foster care, whose mom was murdered, and you can relate to them like no other person can. And I said, okay. So I said, yeah, let's let's do this. So we did. Oh, that's wonderful. So it has it has payoff in ways that not again, I'm not saying I wanted to go through it or I wish it on anybody. All I'm saying is since it happened, look for ways that you can repurpose it and pivot it for something positive, because you're going to find there are ways that you can use it for good. You can. You will. It's out there. It's always a need. That's what we're doing. I know. Yeah, that's why I'm willing to be here. Jan, um, I think I had read somewhere that it was a little bit later in your life where you got into the advocacy work. Is that correct? Was it years Much afterwards? Much later. Yes. And it yes, wasn't yes. until an interaction with another survivor, correct? Mm -hmm. It's just interesting because Jane as well really didn't get into the advocacy work until it was an interaction with another survivor. So it's one of those why in both of your 
question for both of you. Why do you think it took so long for you guys to have the interactions that brought you into advocacy work? And do you think that is extremely common among other survivors? Jane, you want to go first? I think mine was, well, for the first time, I didn't feel alone. <laughs> and uh, when I met a survivor, um, I actually met Kathy Kleiner, which is Ted Bundy's survivor. And uh, it was probably the first time that I did not feel alone. I felt like I completely connected with somebody else. And that's when I realized, you know, there were others out there that have experienced almost similar situations as I. And I really wanted to start um, advocating and sharing my story to let others know that they are not alone and that, um, you know, we can advocate together. It's very powerful when that happens. It's like, I would imagine it's very, I've never been in this situation, but I would imagine it's very like being in a country where you don't speak the language and you stumble across somebody who finally speaks your native tongue and you're able to communicate for the first time in a long time with somebody in another country. That's kind of what it feels like to me. It's like, I don't have to explain all this. You get it. You know, you know what it's like. And this happened to me, <laughs> fortunately, um, for me, for the, for the question you're asking, I only one person have I found has had a similar situation to mine in that her husband was murdered, but at his funeral, she thought he was a good guy. She thought he was a loyal husband. She thought he was a great father. And at his funeral, while she's sitting in the hearse, two other very pregnant women come in to her life and tell her that the child is his and that they ought to be in the hearse with her. Yeah, that's wow. how she learned about who he really was. You know, it's this thinking like uh, you get it. You know what it's like to feel like a doofus, like you think he's a good guy. And then you find out what? Because when the police were first talking to me, I'm like, that's the wrong guy. He wouldn't do that. They don't know him. He's he's a funny duddy has his nose in a book. He's not out chasing criminals or befriending people from the red light district of Detroit. Well, he was. And it makes you feel like an idiot. And then more so because you're a psychologist. It's like. Oh, and you're a psychologist and you don't know what's going on underneath your own roof? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you finally meet somebody who you can talk to, I told her that. I said, you're the only person I've ever met in my life who not only had a husband murdered, but then you find out the secrets. Wow. And she goes, and you're the only person I've ever run across. So we became fast friends, you know, That's and I met her great. through the Internet. I mean, I met her over because she was doing advocacy work and I heard her story and I contacted her and and I went out to meet her. And it was just like this look that she gave me and I gave probably gave it back to her. It's like, wow, you really get it. It's like what you were saying. There's there takes away the isolation takes. I didn't feel judged. Yeah, I felt completely understood and accepted and validated for all that I've been through from somebody who had reason to validate it because she knew she lived it. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah. And that's the power of peer groups. I think that's why I advocate more for peer groups than professional mental health care. I'm not saying don't go see a mental health professional, but so few have been trauma informed. And many of them look at you as, oh, this is an interesting case. Let me see what I can learn from you having you as a patient. That's not what you're there for. You're not no. there to train them. You're there to be helped, you know? Right. So I have always uh, little kid gloves when I talk about mental health professionals intervening, unless they have had special experiences, because they're not going to get it in their formal training program. 
No. They might get it in workshops. They might get it through experience. They might get it through volunteer work. So I'm not saying it's not out there, but I think the first thing I would advocate for is peer groups. And if there isn't one in your area, start one. It doesn't have to be in person. I think that's better, but it can be virtual. I have a lot of hesitations with virtual, but it's better than nothing. I mean, one of my concerns about virtual is you don't know who's recording it and who's in the background. And you want to try and stay anonymous. And yeah. You know, yeah. And there's yeah. something, you know, it'd be like the difference between if you're on a cruise ship virtually and you're on a cruise ship for real. There's a difference in nothing yeah. like real life, you know. Yeah. But yeah. it's not always feasible, particularly in COVID times. And if you live in remote areas in the woods, like some of us are smart enough to do. <laughs> I live on a farm. <laughs> I even I even sleep in the woods in the summer. I have a tent out there. My husband built me a platform. Nice. Last year I had electricity run to it. I sleep out there in the winter. I mean in the summer. I love it. It's so peaceful. <laughs> Lamping, my husband calls it. He said, You have electricity. I don't it's not really that rough. Not really camping. Yeah. <laughs> I, I glamp. I glamp. Do you? I'll, I'll admit yeah. it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I have a camper. Motorhome. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, very I've done the, I've done the tent. I've done the pop up. I've worked my way up. Uh, the same. Now I'm it's at a motorhome and I'm happy yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. I, I think age might have a little to do with it too, with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My preferences and what's fun have changed over the years. I don't do crowds, and I still want to to make all seven continents. Though I would still love to be able to do that. I've never been to South America or the South Pole. COVID put a damper in that, cancer put a damper in that, but I'd like to get back at it and maybe do too. And uh, then I can say I've been to every continent, but um, I do photography too. And oh, it was so fun doing those. I, I mean, I was way off the beaten path. And uh, when my teenage daughter started acting up, she started turning into a little princess, like, I don't want anything that's not from Abercrombie and Feach. I'm like, Mm. we're not dealing with princess dumb in here, this household. Mm -mm. So I took her to Africa under the pretense we're going to go on a, on a safari, which we did. But the main reason we were there is to build trusses for a girls' school and live in a camp without electricity, without running water for two weeks. Oh, the stories we had to tell. And we got back home after all that. And I said, so what do you think? What looks a little different? She goes, I love my toilet. I love paved roads. And I love I can drink the shower, drink the water in the shower. And I thought, how many teenagers does she go to school with who think, say those things, you know? Yeah. And it was life-changing for her too. Yeah, we have a lot of good stories from that experience. That's awesome. It's all about making memories. It I, is. I make so many it memories is. with my, my daughter and my granddaughter. It's like, we're always on the go and always traveling, always doing this, always yeah. doing that. It's like, when I should leave this world, I may not have a lot to leave them, but... Uh, one thing I can leave my daughter and especially my granddaughter is memories. She'll, uh, and those are priceless. Anybody can leave things, yeah. but you can't leave memories if you don't make them. Yeah. She'll have plenty of memories. That's for sure. Well, one of the things I like to say on my podcast, I'll put a plug in for here is a saying from Helen Keller. And she says, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she said, although the world is full of suffering, it is also filled with the overcoming of it. And I believe that especially if you work at it. Yeah, that's a great quote. Certainly is. Mm -hmm. yeah. The one who knows, I mean, she'd been through it too. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Well, it appears as if we are actually out of time, guys. But uh, Jan, it was so great 
to have you on. Thank thank you you. so much. We certainly reserve the right to reach back out to you and have you back on and do some more. (laughs) Absolutely. I know that Drew has a ton more questions and I'm sure that Jane does too. And of course, I I definitely would love to have you back again. Yes, very much. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And if people want to reach me, my website is all small letters. It's www.jancantyphd.com. And they can find my blog, um, podcast information, books, et cetera. A lot of resources are on there as well. Yes. Your website is absolutely fantastic. And we'll make sure and actually put that all in our show notes so people can go see it. Yeah. I definitely wanted to make sure that you made sure and plugged your podcast, which you did domino effect of murder. Go check it out guys. And also your two books that are out as you talked about earlier, a life divided and the what now the navigating the, the essentially the, the how-to manual navigating homicide and suicide. Thank you. Well, thank Thank you you very much. And, um, Best of luck to you. Thank you. You too. And we'll definitely stay, stay in touch with each other. See that finding my card was just meant to be, huh? It really (laughs) was. was. (laughs) We're a true believer that everything happens for a reason. reason. God, it happens all the time with us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you again. And you take care and and we will be sure to put everything in the notes. Thank you, Jan. You're welcome. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.